It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com code SUMMER. This is a story about a regime that, on the one hand, is about to launch its World Cup charm offensive as the hosts of FIFA 2022, and on the other, is embroiled in the death of a British businessman. On Christmas Day, three years ago, a 52-year-old man was found dead, hanging in a four-star hotel room in Qatar. Right, I think it's working. Just start by telling me about Mark, who he was, what he was like. I'm oh, you know, I can feel myself getting emotional already, sorry. Yeah, this is probably going to be the hardest question I ask. Do you know what? He was, he, 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 said he was, he was a unique man, he really was. He was such a team player and everything was based around his family. Um, worked hard, um, Oh, do you know what? Just stop it for the moment. Yeah. That's Nancy Bennett talking about her husband, Mark. It's the first time she's told the story publicly. Mark was a well-liked, outgoing, successful businessman who'd once played rugby for Harlequins. He'd been working in Qatar for two years, but because of his job he wasn't able to spend enough time with his family back at home in the UK. So he resigned and was considering an offer from a Saudi Arabian company. It had been an amicable parting with his old bosses and all seemed to be well, until he returned to Qatar. He was then arrested, imprisoned and allegedly tortured. A few weeks later, he was dead. We had so many plans in place, so many plans for the future. He left here in October with the whole world ahead of him and he never came home.
You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, death in Qatar. What really happened to the British businessman Mark Bennett? And a warning before we begin. This episode contains descriptions of torture. I was contacted out of the blue by a friend of the Bennett family who just said to me they were at a point where they were interested in telling the remarkable story of what happened to Mark Bennett and how he died in Qatar. I'm Sean O'Neill and I'm a senior writer at The Times. Sean's been a journalist at The Times for 18 years and has covered everything from breaking huge front-page stories like uncovering the scandal at Oxfam, to writing very movingly about his own experience of dealing with leukaemia. It took a little while to arrange. Nancy, Mark's widow, was quite cautious. She, she wasn't keen on public exposure, but I think she reached the point where she'd felt she'd run out of diplomatic road, run out of legal road, and wanted people to know what had happened to her husband. And this is the first time she's spoken? Yeah, first interview. How did you meet? I went to her home in Haywards Heath in Sussex. She has an amazing collection of friends and family around her. And I think they were interviewing me, first of all, (laughs) just checking me out. We did some recording and some photographs, and then I went to meet Mark's parents, who live not far away, just north of Brighton. I have known Mark most of my life because Mark played rugby with my brother. Yesterday we would have been married 25 years. He was such a sociable, popular guy. Everybody really did adore Mark. He would help out anybody as well. He was a complete mentor to so many people. He was a huge family man. You know, we've got three children, and he devoted his time to them. Wherever he was in the world, he was flying to different airports, wherever they were, just so that he could catch up with his children. And that was a huge part of why he wanted to leave Qatar and get a different job, because he wanted to be more at home. Absolutely, he wanted to be more at home. Yep, he really did. So, Sean, tell us a bit more about Mark's job. Mark was a long-term specialist in sports travel. He'd also worked extensively in the Middle East. He's one of the people who helped transform Dubai into a go-to destination. So he'd worked for Thomas Cook for TUI before being approached to become a senior vice president of Discover Qatar in 2017. And his main job there was to develop the country's tourism infrastructure for the 2022 World Cup. And tell us a bit about Discover Qatar. Is that, is that a state-owned company? It is. It's part of the Qatar Airways Group. And Qatar Airways is, of course, a huge airline internationally, but it's a state-owned company in Qatar, it's run by one of the country's most powerful men, His Excellency Akbar al bakr Qatar is not very strongly on the tourism map because people still have misperception created by a lot of media against my country. And when they come here, they will see how culturally sophisticated we are, how friendly we are towards foreigners, 
how peaceful and how safe the country is and how free they are here. He's also, incidentally, a director of Heathrow Airport Group, because Qatar has a 20% stake in Heathrow. Oh, wow. And of course, ultimately, all of this traces back to the royal family, which has ultimate power, absolute power in Qatar. Is he a member of the royal family? He's not a member of the royal family, but he's very close to the royal family. And I think he's described himself in the past as a soldier of his country. I am a soldier of my country. As long as I'm needed here, I will stay as long as I'm delivering what is expected from me. So Mark finds this great job in Qatar. He's obviously away from home quite a lot, which is difficult. And he wants to spend more time being able to see his his family. And he's negotiating with his bosses, with Qatar Airways over that. What happens? Everybody who talks to me about Mark stresses how much of a family man he is, how important family is to him. His parents told me about how he'd try and get home every weekend possible from Qatar just to watch one of his sons playing rugby or or, or something like that. So he was trying to negotiate a situation where he could spend more time working from the UK, but he, he was struggling to get permission to do that. So he began to consider other jobs and he was approached, I understand it, by a Saudi company who were prepared to let him work more from the UK and spend more time with his family. He hadn't accepted a new job. There was talk from Mr. Al-Bakr that they would create a, a different role for him. But at the time, the situation in October 2019 was things were still in flux very much. He didn't have a new job immediately to go to, but he did resign from Qatar Airways. So, Sean, it sounds like that's a pretty good parting, but we now know that that wasn't quite the case. Something else was happening behind the scenes. What do we know about what was going on? What seems to have gone on is that there was anger at senior levels within Qatar Airways that Mark had resigned. He was an integral part of planning the development of their tourism industry for the World Cup. And I think what really mattered was that he was possibly going to work for a Saudi company and that at the time there was a very fierce diplomatic dispute between Saudi and Qatar. And a former colleague of his contacted me and claimed that it had been viewed as a massive insult to Qatar Airways, to the country that he was leaving. And then he was considering going to work somewhere else. So at this stage, Mark's resigned. He's back in the UK. But then he gets a phone call asking him to go back to Qatar one last time just to finalise all the paperwork. And he does. What happens then? He goes back to Qatar on the 11th of October. He's booked a flight back to the UK on the 15th of October. But the flights keep being cancelled. He's phoning home and he's telling Nancy, oh, there's a problem with my residency permit. There's a problem with the paperwork. I just have to stay a few more days. And then on the 17th of October, he's on his way. He's going to say goodbye to his team before going on to the airport to catch his flight back to the UK. And he gets a phone call saying, you must come to the Qatar Airways head office immediately. And that's where he goes. So he never went in to discover Qatar, which I found out later. They were like, where is he? What's happened to him? But obviously nobody knew what happened to him. And from where you're sitting, he kind of just disappears off the radar. Yes. I was due to pick him up that night. Obviously I hadn't heard from him. I'd phoned him, phoned him, phoned him. Nothing, no answer. It was just going dead. 
WhatsApp, nothing, nothing, nothing. And it wasn't until the Friday, early hours of the morning, that I received a phone call from Mark. He said, everything's fine, Nance. I'm not allowed to talk about anything, but I'm at the police station and I'll see you tomorrow. Do you want to talk about what happened to him from what you know now? So he was on his way to discover Qatar to go and say goodbye to everybody when he was diverted. I don't know who phoned him to go to Qatar Airways. So that's where he headed to. He got into reception. He was met by CID. He was taken to a room which is just off where Akbar sits. He had to hand everything over. Um, and they were asking him what was on his laptop. And he said, have it, you can see everything that's on my laptop. So he was questioned quite some time. And then he was taken out an exit that he didn't know was within the building. It was a back exit. They then blindfolded him and handcuffed him and put him in a car. He didn't know where he was being taken. And then it was all about one of the companies that he was thinking he may go and work for, a Saudi company, and it was to set up the same sort of program as Discover Qatar, but for the Saudis, and they were questioning him, who approached him, what were the names, when did he meet them, where did he meet them, what did they want? He had nothing, and he was saying that everything is on my laptop, you've got everything. There was a moment when I knew... There was a lot more to it because he did say that when he came home, he would speak to a very good friend of ours that has been in the Special Forces that knows what happens in places like this. And that in the back of my head, I was thinking, you know, something else has gone on here. And it wasn't until we went to Qatar that we found out more as to what they had put Mark through. So, Sean, what do we now know was happening to Mark. We know he was taken to a state security facility. We don't know where that is. Indeed, when British embassy officials were able to visit him, they had to arrange to meet Qatari officials in a specific location and then be taken to this secret location. And we know that these are places where the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention has had very serious concerns about detentions taking place without judicial supervision and about ill treatment. And we know from friends he confided in after his release, he said he was tortured. And I have spoken to one of them. This person wanted to be anonymous and only felt safe enough to say these things after leaving Qatar. He said, Mark told me he was first put into a rough cell in a rough prison in an unknown location. He was tortured, stripped naked, spread with a high power hose, and a powerful jet of water was directed specifically at his genitals, causing bleeding. He was woken every one to two hours and interrogated and screamed at and told things like, you're taking our stuff to Saudi. He was slammed against a wall, cutting open the back of his head. He slept on the floor, Every time he would drift off to sleep, he would be woken up and taken off to another room and asked the same questions over and over again. He kept repeating his story. He said, you have everything. I'm not a spy. I've, I've spent the last two years working to promote Qatar, not to undermine it. He was then moved to a slightly better room. He thought within the same facility. The physical torture stopped, but the psychological torture continued. 
they would tell him, oh, you're going to be released, pack your things. He would get dressed, pack his things, and they'd say, no, you're not, throw him back into the prison. And that continued for the best part of three weeks uh, until when he was actually released. And at this point, do we know why he's been detained? Have, have Qatar Airways said anything? Have they explained why he's been held? From the documentation that we've obtained, there seem to be allegations of endangering the Qatari economy, possessing commercially sensitive information. At one point, espionage is mentioned. But he has one court appearance. It's in Arabic. He struggles to follow it. But then it all seems to fall away. After his release, he can't find out what's happening. Nobody knows. The British Embassy can't seem to find out any information about charges or court dates or anything. He's just in this legal limbo. This is all effectively because he got another job. The only explanation I can find is that he not just had the prospect of another job, but he was being tapped up by a Saudi company in particular. Do we know if he held sensitive information? Do we know if he knew anything that might have been dangerous for the Qataris if it had got out? He wasn't involved in security. He was involved in tourism. The only thing I can think that he had that they might have objected to was information on his laptop about his job. Now, he took that in and out of the country all the time when he was working. And when he left, he said he had an arrangement to conduct a handover briefing with this information with his successor in London at the World Travel Market at Excel. Um, and I know he had appointments there. I've spoken to people who went there to meet him and were told that he'd left the company and nobody knew where he was. So is that what was used against him? Sean's now heard back from Qatar Airways and they dispute that there were plans for a handover briefing in London and they've also sent the following statement. In October 2019, Mark returned to Qatar following a break in the UK in order to finalise his departure from the business. Evidence subsequently came to light, showing that over a significant period of time, Mark had emailed highly confidential documents relating to Qatar Airways to a private email address without authorisation. Mark was arrested and this then became a police matter. When he is finally released, that's kind of out of the blue then, isn't it? Yes, they dropped him at the Torch Hotel with no other papers apart from a post-it note with a telephone number on it. And that number, he was asked to call when he had a mobile number that they could get hold of him on and an address. Mm. And then from then on, from the Qatari side, there's no real official communication. There's none. About nothing. Charges, court dates. There's nothing. Nothing, except that he's not allowed to leave the country. Not allowed to leave the country. He phoned that post-it note number weekly, but he got no information coming back whatsoever. And does he have any communication with Qatar Airways? With, with nothing. Mr Albacar or anyone? Nothing no, at all? nothing. When you were talking to him during this period, was he frightened? Yeah, definitely. Anxious, frightened, just didn't know what was happening, was hoping that he would be deported. He was looking at flights every single day just to get the itineraries of flights, not necessarily back to the UK, but just anywhere. to anywhere in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and he carried that around with him all the time. 
he tried to keep himself as busy as he possibly could and he would he would go for daily walks he would borrow a friend's bike go on bike rides but i know even he, when he was out he would walk sort of with a hoodie up and if cars would slow down behind him he said that his heart would start pounding so he was definitely anxious so sean he's been released but he's still effectively a prisoner in the country he can't leave he can't come home What's the Foreign Office doing around this period? From the beginning, from when he was detained, Nancy immediately alerted the Foreign Office, who alerted the British Embassy in Doha. They are on the case. They do go to visit him. And after his release, he continues to keep in touch with with the consular officials at the embassy. But Mark is reluctant to explain what happened to him. He doesn't want to talk about the ill treatment. He says, I don't want to poke the bear. He's afraid of being rearrested. He's afraid of being tortured again. His priority is, I just want to get out of the country. So I guess they're limited in what they can do, and they are making some efforts to find out what's going on, but I think they're struggling to get information out of the Qatari authorities as well. And are his lawyers having any luck? Do they, do they even know what it is that he's being charged with? No. He hires a lawyer briefly. The lawyer comes back to him and says... We can't even find a case against you. We can't find any information. We don't know what's going on. There's nothing we can do. We did ask the Foreign Office if they'd like to respond. Sean emailed nine questions, covering everything from what assistance they offered to how much the Foreign Office knew about Mark's alleged torture. The reply was succinct. They said... We provided assistance to the family of a British man following his death in Doha. Coming up, after Mark was found dead, his wife Nancy flew to Qatar to work out what had happened to him. We'll have more in just a moment. That's after a quick word from a colleague. I'm Christina Lamb. I'm Chief Foreign Correspondent of the Sunday Times, and I mostly cover conflict around the world. I particularly focus on what happens to women in war. And the reason that we can do this kind of reporting is thanks to the subscribers of the Times and Sunday Times. So please subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Let me take you to Christmas Eve. You have that FaceTime call with him. It was on the 23rd. Was it the 23rd? It was a very upbeat conversation. Children were here. We were sitting around the table with Mark on FaceTime, really laughing and joking. He was going to a party Christmas Eve, which he was looking forward to. He'd been had his hair cut. And really, we sort of ended the conversation on a really high note. Mm-hmm. We were all devastated that he wasn't going to be here for Christmas. And we had already discussed that we would have him again on FaceTime up on the unit so that he could see what's going on and sort of be in the conversations. We had the conversation then as well. It was coming up to three months, I mean, like three months, and you haven't heard anything. Mm-hmm. He'd had the conversation with the Foreign Office and they had said that after Christmas they would really push to see what was happening. And we'd also discussed for different friends, they were going to fly over as soon as Christmas was over, which he was really happy about. So what happened the next day was... I tried calling him, which we did two or three times a day, we'd call every day. I tried all day and it got to the afternoon and I phoned the Foreign Office to ask them if they could find out what was happening because I couldn't get hold of Mark. And then he was found dead that evening by the hotel staff. The news came through. Um, God, I remember being told, but I'll be honest with you, I don't remember a huge man in it because we were in total shock. I know my sister. is all we knew Mark had died and the police officers had left a number so Michelle had to take over and find out try and find out what actually happened um, and then obviously we had to have a few conversations a few conversations because there's many conversations happening to tell the children but then it was obviously right, okay, we've we've got to get Mark back here. I did receive a phone call from the Foreign Office to say that Akbar had said that he would repatriate Mark. I did ask how long it would take to do that. Two days, which I was quite astounded by. A massive Super contrast tough. between not letting the man leave the country. And then wanting him out. Get rid it's, of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Absolutely, that's exactly how I felt. So you went to Qatar with some of Mark's friends and you encounter kind of obstruction and bureaucracy and obfuscation, but there's a veneer of wanting to help you. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very much that we will help you, but we really didn't get much help. So again, our contract, Kareem, he was picking us up from Qatar airport. He's a Qatar Airways employee. Qatar Airways employee, employee. yes. So we met him and even on the way to the hotel, Kareem 
he was constantly on his phone and it was pinging and he's texting back and it was pinging. And we pulled up at the hotel. I got out and I did hear my name being called. And as I turned around, Akbar was standing there. What did so he say? He said, I only have two minutes. I wanted to come and give you my condolences, but I only have two minutes. I asked him, Akbar, what happened? He said, I don't know what happened. And again, I only have two minutes. That's all he could say, I only have two minutes. I said, yes, but what happened? I don't understand. He said, I don't know. I said, what happens to Mark's passport? Why was he not allowed home? Akbar said he thought his passport may have been lost. Um, he said, I only have two minutes. And he pretty much then left. And you haven't seen or heard of him since? I have heard from him because I did, uh, actually he did say to Kareem, if there's anything we needed, then let him know. Um, I've asked to meet him. I'd really like to go to discover Qatar. I'd really like to go and meet Mark's colleagues, but I wasn't allowed. What do you think of that? I don't think he can look me in the eye. I think he knows what happened. Now, I know you got into the room where Mark died, but that raises more questions than answers for you, doesn't yes. it? Yes, yes, yeah. Because there is a, every sign of a man who's living his life and has a plan to continue, continue living, living his life. Yeah. Absolutely. His party clothes were laid out, he'd done some washing of his gym clothes, even the bed, it was honestly as if he'd put the book down to just get up and go and answer the door. It was on its spine. There was food, though it was cold, obviously, but a cup of coffee still in his mug. There's no note. And what struck me talking to his friends and to you is he's a communicator. He's talking Massive and communicator. messaging all the time. Massive communicator. But if this was the biggest decision he ever made in his life, he didn't communicate it to him. No, no, nothing, nothing which must play a big part in the decision that the coroner eventually makes when the coroner says no evidence of suicidal intent. Mm -hmm. So Sean, Nancy took a friend to go and see this room. And I know that he's very well qualified really to, to pass judgment. He's a former senior counter-terrorism officer at Scotland Yard. You spoke to him. What did he say? He is very well qualified to examine a scene like this. He's been a, a senior investigating officer, I think, for 20 of his 30 years in the police. So I'll just read you from my notes of, of his quotes. And he doesn't want to be named because he still works in international security. Mm. He said, That room gave me the immediate impression of someone living there with a plan for tomorrow. In scenes of suicide I visited, there are often signs this is the last day. They write a note, there's some kind of explanation. They wash up, they tidy up. None of that was in evidence here. These were all indicators this was a guy who intended to live. It was as if he'd just got off the bed to answer the phone or answer a knock on the door. And he said, I've learned over the years to trust my gut and my gut was screaming at me that this is wrong. You can't treat this as a suicide. Wow. I mean, that that's quite convincing. Um, as well as... Speaking to Nancy, you've also spoken to Mark's parents. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I went to see Tony, Mark's father, and Mickey, his mum. 
and they're a lovely couple. They live quite near where Nancy lives in Sussex, and uh, they just uh, painted a lovely picture of their son, this this boy who loved rugby and loved his family, and you know they're devastated. They they saw him the day he left to go back to Doha for that unexpected trip, and he said he just had to tie up a few loose ends, but they never saw him again. When you think about the way he died, do you believe he took his own life, or do you think... I can never believe that Mark took his own life. He lived and breathed for his family. He was desperate to get back home. I mean, he would fly back at weekends, 14 hours, seven hours here, seven hours back, for 36 hours with, with his wife and children. I cannot, cannot ever accept that he committed suicide. And neither could the coroner. And neither could the coroner. Which just leaves this great big question over what happened. The horrible irony of this is that his job was promoting Qatar and making it a a tourist destination. And there's a video of him in an interview saying it's an incredibly safe place to come and visit. I'm Mark Bennett. I'm the Senior Vice President for Discover Qatar. The differentiator for Qatar as a destination is the authenticity of that Middle East culture, but it's still an incredibly safe place to come to. And he was developing this industry for the World Cup, wasn't he, really? Yes. Thousands and thousands of people are going to be going there for the World Cup. Do you think people understand what the real nature of you know, what the dark side of no, the No, I that don't. I is. don't, Sean. And it's the smile of the tiger, isn't it? This is lovely, beautiful smile and welcome, welcome, welcome. But it can stick a knife in your back any time we like. The state of Qatar says it has nothing to apologise for in hosting the Men's Football World Cup. The country has been criticised for its human rights record, attitudes towards minorities, as well as workers' conditions. In my view, the Qataris can buy the best people in the world to do whatever job they want to do. And there is all the glitz and the glamour and the bling. And underlying all that is a very dark, brutal regime, which is medieval. And our son was a victim of that. We'll never know what happened, what dreadful things they must have done to him. We had one telephone conversation with him when he was in the detention centre. He kept repeating, I'm fine, Mom, don't worry, I'm fine, I'm fine. Tell Dad everything's going to be all right. And clearly, he couldn't say any more than that. Someone must have been standing over him. He was clearly really threatened. The question that haunts us both and haunts me is always going to be, what did they do to you and why? did they do this to you? Mark had served them well. He had worked incredibly hard. He loved his job. He was a bright, intelligent, sensitive, just a wonderful man. And he had a phenomenal memory. And I dare say that may have contributed to him losing his life. What was your last conversation? He sat at the kitchen table and he said, Mum, I can't stay long. I've got a flight in half an hour or an hour or whatever it was. And we we were surprised, weren't we? We were. I said, I thought this was it. And he said, well, I did too. He said, but I, I have to go back. 
but I'll be back on Monday or Tuesday. And he said, it's all going to be good, Mum. It's all going to be fine. And that was, that was it. the last conversation, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he gave us both a hug. And, Off you oh, yeah. yeah. Did you speak to him around Christmas time? Yes, he phoned. In fact, I was out and I said, I've got to get home because Mark has asked me to phone at half past five. And I phoned him and he said, Mama, I'm so tired, I'm going to go to bed. I'll speak to you in the morning. And didn't. that was the last conversation we had. Mm. Not even a conversation. <clears throat> So, Sean, what happens with the case now? The family certainly feel they've pretty much run out of road. I've been speaking to them and they're trying one more attempt, which is to see if the United Nations Working Group and Arbitrary Detention will conduct an inquiry or a review of what happened to Mark. So I know they're sending a, a file of evidence and they would hope for some sort of independent finding that isn't caught up in the diplomatic niceties. That is part of the complication, you know. Is is the Foreign Office doing anything about this? And, you know, has it affected UK-Qatari relations? Not that I can see. Interestingly, they wrote to the family on the 22nd of September last year saying, we now want to close the case. That was a week after Liz Truss became Foreign Secretary. The following month, October 2021, Liz Truss was in Qatar continuing negotiations about a strategic partnership with Doha. And that was completed in May this year when the Amir came to Downing Street. Qatar's Amir Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani is in London on the last leg of his European tour. He met with the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, where energy, security, and liquefied natural gas were high on the agenda. The chair of and there was a press release announcing a £10 billion investment package in the UK by the Qatari Investment Authority. Wow. And the Foreign Office, did they explain why they were closing the case? To use Mickey Bennett's words, she felt it was now at the bottom of the filing tray and they felt in very bland, factual language they had done all that they could do. At the same time, we know that the World Cup is coming up and for Qatar that's incredibly important. Will this case, I mean, will there be any attention on it then? Will it be highlighted? Does it have any impact on how people respond to the World Cup? It's might make some people think twice before you go to Qatar. If you think that the man whose job it was to promote Qatari tourism can be treated in this way. But no, I think Qatar is gearing up to to welcome 1.2, 1.5 million people from around the world. It's going to be on the world stage. It's altered some of its rules about who can share hotel rooms, for example. So it's on its best behavior. And I'm sure the World Cup will pass off largely without incident. And what about Nancy, Mark's widow? What does she want to happen now? Nancy wants answers. She just wants answers. Would you yeah. like the Foreign Office to reopen this and go back to the Qataris and say, please give us a full explanation? of? I would love them to, and we have asked them to, but they say that they can't, and I have to get a lawyer to do that. However, when we spoke to the lawyers, they said there's nothing we can do because it's a state security matter. 
they had inquired, but again, there was no case and there was no information. So who can help? I don't know. Did you ever get an outcome of the, the court appearance that he did have? No, nothing. What do you think happened? I do not know. Yeah. I do not know. There's so many questions that I need to be answered before I could even answer that question. We had so many plans, so many plans for future. He left here in October with the whole world ahead of him and he never came home. In a statement, Qatar Airways said, Mark Bennett was a valued and popular former colleague of Qatar Airways Group who made a significant contribution to our business. And while we were sad to see him leave the business, he left with our best wishes. Mark's former colleagues at Qatar Airways were shocked to hear of his tragic death. And we provided assistance to his family by way of a contribution towards repatriation costs and certain travel and other costs. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Sean O'Neill, senior writer at The Times. You can find all of Sean's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producer today was Olivia Case. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.